0: You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. B2B sales and marketing works to find the highest quality prospects, reach decision makers, and sell value. Operational excellence uses data and systems thinking to make changes that cause improvement and eliminate waste. My name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. In the next 30 to 40 minutes, we're going to destroy the myth that these two groups conflict and show you how to bring both strategies together to create more wealth for your company and your customers. Hello, this is Michael Webb, and I am excited today to introduce you to someone I've known for a number of years. His name is Cliff Ransom. Cliff holds a a very unique position in the industry. I'll let him give you his background, but he has a this unique position between the investor relations and management community and the lean community. And what we're going to talk about today, I think is going to be illuminating and, and quite interesting, especially for the senior executives in the audience. So Cliff, welcome here.
1: Thank you very much, Mike. It's fun to be here.
0: Yes. Yes. We're going to have some fun today. So if you could give 30 seconds or a minute for the audience so they can kind of get the idea of where you've come from and you know where you've been and what you're doing now? I'm
1: going to try to put 47 years into 60 seconds. Here we go. I've been in the investment business almost exclusively with institutional investors for 47 years. Almost 30 years ago, I became deeply involved with Danaher, which became my prototype investment and my prototype corporate mentality. I have a very unusual, I can't say unique, but unusual business model and that I have three legs on my stool. One is 47 years of connection, support for learning from institutional investors, portfolio managers, analysts at some of the biggest and best firms in the world, quite frankly. The second leg is that I have very consciously built a deep presence in the lean community, That includes practitioners, the authors, the consultants, the gurus like yourself who have very specialized knowledge of lean applications. And then perhaps most importantly, I've worked with several generations of C-suite corporate leaders, and they understand what it is that I do and make sure that I get the access that I need to learn. Because I learn by going to the Gemba, going to the place where the real work is done. And we can elaborate on that later if you'd like but that's in essence what I'm doing today. For the last 15 years, I've run Ransom Research, Inc., which works with a deliberately constrained group of senior investors because they're the guys who can afford me. And they want me to exercise those three legs of that stool. And I think it, in a nutshell, that's about as close as I can get.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, super. So so obviously, you're on a first-name basis with senior executives at the Shingo Institute, at the Lean Enterprise Institute, and a number of corporations.
1: And we can go in either direction. You lead me.
0: Tell me about why, that, why you think the senior executives don't quite realize the power of lean, because I agree with you, but it's hard to describe.
1: You know, everything you ever say in this business, you're changing constantly. There's a there's a, a webinar up on the LEI site that I've been trying to get them to take down for 15 years because I say, guys, I don't believe any of that stuff anymore because continuous improvement has to be applied to your intellectual thinking as well. In the 90s, I counted the number of Kaizens. That's how simple-minded I was. and That was way before I understood that what Kaizens you did are really indicative. They pertain to how you think about lean. You can do 10,000 Kaizens and have a minuscule benefit. They'll all benefit, but minuscule. Or you can do three things that have a profound change on your employees, your customers, your suppliers, yourself. I became quite adamant that this had to be a cultural transformation because particularly as an investor, the last thing I want you to do is to start on this course of action, start inculcating these mindsets, and then give up on them because you'll only confuse your employee's your suppliers, your shareholders, your regulators, it's the worst thing you can do is to start and then kill it. I was the chairman of the board of Shingo, so yeah. I love the Shingo model. Um, I used to get in trouble with the professional staff because they'd ask me to give speeches you know, all around the country, all over the world. And I would say, I don't give a damn whether you ever apply for the Shingo Prize. I just want you to live by the Shingo model. And I think everybody should understand the model. Of course, then the staff would come to me and they'd say, "Uh, Cliff, uh, you know, we make our money by helping people apply for the prize. (laughs) I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like a friend of mine ran into her on the street this morning. And she said, we were one of the 12 finalists for the Deming Prize. And we got interviewed and we just missed it. And I said to her, good. And she looked at me with a stricken look. She works at a hospital. And I said, The Deming Prize is not what you want to do. What you want to do is to live up to the Deming philosophy. That's what you want. And she said, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. You know, I said, if you want me to come out and chat with your folks about why that's an important distinction, I'd be happy to do it.
0: So to me, this is about helping companies learn to think more critically. All the people inside the company need to be enrolled in that effort, and most especially the senior people. They have to lead it by how they ask questions, how they respect the accomplishments and failures of the people who work for them.
1: You know, you talk about inquiring minds. An inquiring mind, by definition, requires the willingness to listen to alternative theses, to to gather data. Toyota says the data will speak to you. But you have to do it with an intention. I I was working with LEI. They were doing sort of one of these CEO seminars. By the way, nobody in the lean business has yet broken the... uh, code on how to get CEOs to go to seminars. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I said, you know, John, to John Shook, who's been a dozen people who have been incredibly patient and generous and giving of their time and and sensibilities to me, and Shook's one of them. I said, you know, John, this business about asking questions really comes hard to me. My line is humility does not come easily to me. The idea of asking questions rather than barking orders, I always succeeded in life from the military on up by, you know, they'd say, take the hill. I'd go take the hill. I might, you know, hire a bunch of North Korean mercenaries to do it, but I wouldn't tell them that until I had the flag up there. But I said, I just asking questions is hard. I said, but I'm really working at it. I'm really trying to do it. And he said, yes, he didn't quite say wax on, wax off, little grasshopper, but he said, (laughs) Yes, Cliff, I can tell you're working very hard at this, but you're also asking questions that still drive people to your preconceived conclusions. It's like an ax right between the eyes. I do this all the time. Every time I think that I've gotten to kindergarten, one of my sensei very politely slapped me right back down to kindergarten. And that was the first time I realized it. And it happens like, I don't know, monthly now. But that's good because that allows you to draw on everybody around you. You asked earlier, and I didn't answer, why don't CEOs get it? When I used to give speeches, I guess I still do, but I don't do it much. I had seven PowerPoint slides with like seven bullets on each slide of why people didn't do it. And the last slide was great big letters that said stupidity. Because it (laughs) meant they couldn't get how powerful this stuff was. They couldn't give up, I'm always right. now. I don't blame them in many respects, because they got to be CEO or executive vice president by being a firefighter, by succeeding in the face of adversity, and by doing it and then driving other people to do it their way. I tell CEOs today, take your biggest firefighter and fire him, because he's probably your biggest arsonist. He sets the fire so that he can watch it and so that he can put it out. And those are not the helpful people. Those are not the helpful people.
0: By the way, your observation, uh, the first thing that leapt to my mind when you said you're asking questions that drive people to your preconceived solutions, isn't that what salespeople do?
1: I know you know this because we've talked about it, but I'm going to bring it up and I'm going to start with when I was the chairman of the Shingo Institute and we were really trying to get healthcare involved in lean thinking. And because I mean I felt that healthcare is the second biggest problem in this nation after education, but nobody wants to try to change educators' minds. Doctors' minds are hard enough to change. Medical <laughs> administrators' minds are hard enough to change. But we found we did one of two things. We either not we I'm, I'm a I'm a senior advisor, one of those amorphous capital letters, non-corporate titles for five different lean consulting firms, and to get the Administrators to believe it, we'd go in and, you know, in in a week's Kaizen activity in the pharmacy of the hospital, you'd take out $20 million worth of stuff you don't need to have. You know, aspirin, they'll have three years of supply of aspirin. And, you know, when you can get aspirin in 24 hours, any place in the country, or they'll have six weeks of some very fancy HIV drug, which is going to be obsolete in four weeks and it's $15,000 a dosage. And you suddenly drop 20 million bucks in their lap with, you know, the cost of a couple of people during the week, they get it. Then what we did is we went to the nurses. We, I kind of have to stop saying we. They went to the nurses and they said, look, why do nurses go into nursing? They don't go in for the reasons that doctors do, to make a lot of money, to get social status, to become, you know, famous. They do it because they want to keep healthy people happy, uh, healthy and make sick people well, they know that if they are not touching physically, if they don't have their hands on that patient, it's almost impossible to add value. you know it has to be like two feet away every minute you teach them how to value stream map, and they suddenly say, "Wait a minute, I'm spending eighty percent of my time chasing pillows, asking for the maintenance guy to fix the valve on that." Oxygen line, sorting the bloody pill cups, that's not doing, that's not adding value. That's all derivative stuff. And when you go to a salesman and he says, oh, I'm this is my territory. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know everybody. I play golf with them. And then you get them to value stream map and they say, because they know that unless they're face to face with that customer, they ain't going to write a ticket. They're not going to have an order. Right. And you say, do you know you spend forty percent of your time driving around in your car? Do you know that you spend forty percent of your time delivering late products? Do you know you spend twenty percent of your time chasing down, you know, an order that's fallen through the cracks somewhere? And they go, wait a minute, tell me how to tell me how to spend ninety percent of my time doing value-added work, and they become
0: real zealots, real right. zealots. Right. Right. You have to show it what's in it for them. Absolutely. And- just as in a factory, just as in a hospital, in sales, it has to do with the assumptions that we walk around in our head, the assumptions about reality, some of which may not be true. Absolutely. And that's the hard part to break through. So yep. you as the lean practitioner, like the, back to the quote of what John Shook said, you have to ask the questions that are based on the context that the other person has presented. Because you're trying to stimulate their insight about how to get better. And there's no
1: better place to apply the five whys. You now, well, why yeah. do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why? 200 days a year I spend on the road. I tell people I'm really only 37 years old, but I look like this wreck because of my travel schedule, which is you know a lot of time gone, so that I can watch. They say, Genji Gambutsu, go to the Gemba, the place where the real work is done and see. Right. I've sort of expanded that to say, go and watch, because you have to be able to understand the flow and the velocity. If you can't see it in the HR department or on the factory floor or in the new product lab, if you can't see the dashboards, if you can't see whether they're ahead or behind for the day, they ain't doing it. They may think they are, or they have you know some fancy electronic board but they're not thinking that way, So building those habits into their everyday actions.
0: So would you say that a key role of the senior executive is to try to get or to help the employees, the middle management especially, to make their assumptions and their thinking more visible? It almost always goes the other
1: way. I make the comment, and I'm trying not to be absolute here, I have never seen a lean transformation be sustained unless the chairman, the boss, the CEO, the head of the board, or the owner was the champion. Never, I've seen enormous improvement, but I've never seen it stick unless that person is the boss. You need a George Sherman at Danaher. You need uh, Larry Kulp moving from Danaher to GE. I think he's going to do it at GE. This is 215,000 people. He's going to have to change. It takes uh, Bill Cassling at Webtech. It takes Mike Lamock at Ingersoll Rand when he told his folks, now that I'm the chairman and CEO, we've been messing around with this lean for 15 years. But as of today, it's non-negotiable. And he said to me, I'm going to work on one lean activity a month. And I said, oh my God, Mike, you'll kill yourself. You're running a 12, at the time, $12 billion company. And he said, if I don't set the model, not to lead the Kaizens, but to be on the team, these boys and girls are not going to believe me. I just went and spent a week in a pump factory uh, for Gardner Denver in Princeton, Illinois, which is in the middle of soybean and cornfields that go for yeah. tens of thousands of acres in all directions. Yeah. I kept saying, don't these guys know we're at war with, with uh, China? Who are they going to sell all this shit to? You know. Anyway, um, uh, they had a uh, – let me just think what they called it uh, – inquiry to – uh order they had to configure these products it was like forty five days and everybody else in the industry was at thirty and when you're buying a ten thousand dollar pump you're gonna buy it from the guy who get it to you in twenty days instead of thirty whatever it was well we took it to like four days with three days of Kaizen work. Four days. Now wow. we built a room we put everybody that did it in around the same table I mean, it wasn't easy, but we did it. And the fact of the matter is, we had sightline to make that a day. Well, when they get to be a day, they're gonna get all. They're gonna get some. I said to the operations guys, "You better get ready, you know, because you're gonna get so goddamn many orders. You're gonna have no idea what to do with them all." And that's a nice problem to have, isn't it, Michael? Oh yeah. I try not to put myself as a role model because I'm still learning so much, but. I've only got four things that I do that add value. I visit companies. I am called upon by my clients, and this is a mantra for them, and it's been the hardest thing for me to do for a lot of reasons. We don't need to go in them today. I should write short, bulleted, inclusion-oriented reports, not magnum opuses. I should travel to see, or most importantly, the third thing, or travel to see or carry my clients with me, When I visit facilities, meet with managements, go to trade shows, industry events. And then there's a fourth one, which is build my lean presence. That one's pretty amorphous, but it reflects the fact that's how I'm going to learn. And I work out of a 200-year-old house in Baltimore. And I have 1.2 ladies who support me. And we work out of two great big rooms, wide open. The entry between the two is probably 15 feet wide. And if I hang up the phone, one of them will ask me, well, now, Cliff, that sounded like an interesting conversation you had. Can you describe to me how that will add value for this client or that value or some other client? And it's, again, that acts right between the eyes. And I'll say, damn it, I'm allowed to have dinner with my friends every once in a while. (laughs) But the rest of the time, I have to concentrate on what adds value. So you and I have talked about this, but I... I got a lot of, my, my tagline for my business is the way of lean investing. It's to steal that sort of Zen-like portion of the of the Toyota way, but call it lean investing very specifically. And all kinds of people, I note most of the time it was people who aren't my clients, but people interested in lean, said, you got to write the book. You got to write the book. So I started writing the book and we reorganized my time and the ladies picked up stuff and we killed a lot of stuff that was non-value added. I was going to spend 20% of my time on the book. I wrote 10 chapters and I sent them off to all my long-suffering sensei mentors. And the first guy to come back was Jim Womack. And he said, what's your purpose? The second guy to come back was John Shook. And he said, who's your audience? And the third guy who's one of my major supporters said, what's your voice? And I realized I couldn't answer any of those questions. So I tore (laughs) up those chapters and I outlined on like one, two, three, four, I'm looking at them, big whiteboards with three by five cards, like 22 chapters of the book. And I looked at it and said, I don't know who's going to derive value from this. It's not really for corporate executives. It's not really for lean practitioners. It's certainly not for investors. Uh, So why am I writing it? If I can't define the people who are going to add value, you know, people for years would say, "Well, it's part of your legacy." I'd say, "I'll be dead. What do I care about my legacy?" And so I killed the book. Of course, I wound up spending about half my time instead of 20% of my time. But you know, these are all learning opportunities, right, Mike?
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: When I look at companies, I have three categories. One is the super achievers in my universe. These are people who are very process driven. Process driven to the extent that it becomes a bona fide culture. And then I have a group of companies inelegantly named, a good implication in the name, and I call them next generation Danaher's. There are only nine super achievers in approximate order of uh, ascension to my list. That was uh, Danaher, ITW, United Technologies, GE. And we can come back and talk about that if we want to, because I've got a lot of egg on my face. Well, I will say, because most people do start laughing I didn't start buying GE in my 47-year career until 2008. I looked brilliant between '09 and, I don't know, 11 or 12. And then, of course, I looked stupid again. Now I'm back to looking okay because I'm back to I'm about back to my average cost. The point is that, uh, who, ah, the others. Added later Roper, I would comment that Roper and ITW are not classically lean thinking companies, but they have extraordinarily... Uh, Disciplined and well articulated and well followed practices. I added later, I added Roper, as I said, I added Honeywell, I added a Fortive when it was spun out of Danaher because obviously it's the same DNA. Um, And I added Parker, Hannafin, and Crane uh, most recently. I find it instructive that in 15 years of running my own firm and using that categorization, I've only got nine companies that I can call truly world-class practitioners of organized thinking. I've got about 50 names that fall into the next generation Danaher category. Um, I sometimes frustrate those organizations because they can stay on the list for five or 10 years before I'm convinced that they're really sustained. All but the first four of the super achievers started on the next generation Danaher list.
0: So. I would say there are very few people that do it. One last question, and then we're gonna we're gonna try to wrap it up. I had a fascinating conversation from a gentleman. He was in his early 80s, and he had founded a company. It was up in Ohio, and they were a company that had made a huge impact in the market with organic fruits and vegetables. They served <laughs> high-end restaurants, and he made a comment. He said, "I'm. We need a, a sales process because our eight salespeople, you, you know." It's just not working the way it needs to. And I'm getting old. Um, and he said, I, I hear this lean stuff and empowerment kinds of ideas, and but when you're starting a business, you have to be a dictator because you're the only one who knows what the customers want and how to give it to them. And you hire a bunch of people who are coming in to, you know, do stuff so that you don't have to do it all. He says, There's just no other way to do it than being a dictator in the beginning. And then and how did you answer that? Well, I know what I, my answer would be. I want to hear yours. Well, so what I thought from that, my, my conclusion was, well, that makes a lot of sense. But there has to be a transition at some point. There has to be a transition at some point where you are engaging people for their ability to think and not just as pairs of hands to go do your bidding. So sometimes like in a corporate turnaround situation, this is what I thought and I'd be real interested in, in your thoughts. Is corporate turnaround, sometimes managements must make dictatorial decisions, you know, just because they have to, it's an emergency, like in combat or something. But most of the time, they shouldn't rely on that. Most of the time we need to be developing the people in order for these emergencies not to happen. That was my uh, that was my answer. So Well, but what he was really
1: saying was at the beginning, at the beginning, at the beginning, and I would ask at the beginning you obviously had, you, you grew, you know, half an acre of vegetables. You sold it to restaurants. You decided you wanted to go to 2,000 acres and sell it to restaurants and you need 100 salespeople. I would say, why wouldn't you have a dialogue with the people that you're going to hire, hopefully hire some good ones first and say, this is the way I look at it. What do you think? Or what What has your experience been? Or go visit some guy who's growing organic vegetables in California, selling them to restaurants. Who you're never going to be a competitor to, and say, How about if we exchange? You know, I brought two of my salesmen with me. How about if we exchange, you know, swap lies, as I call it, and learn about each other's business? Why wouldn't you reach out and see if somebody had a better idea? Michael, you and I both know it's not that we're smart, or maybe we're smart, but it's not that we're experts. I've already told you how I feel about that. You go into a plant and you say, Well, why do you do that? And 90% of the time, they'll say, we never thought about it. It's just fresh eyes. And I would say, you don't have to start by demanding that they do it your way, because God bless you. You may have been successful, but it's, by definition, it wasn't the best way. As continuous improvement says, there's always a better way. So if you've been successful with a dictator, distill it. Find the two or three things that really were important to it eliminate the four or five or 50 things that actually detracted from it that you didn't realize it until you had some fresh eyes. I cannot disagree more with that guy's statement because I think there's a better way to do it. There's always a better way to do it. You know, that's the difference between the United States Army and the U.S. Marine Corps. I was in the parent company of the Marine Corps, the Navy. So good, I've just irritated everybody who was in the military. If the general on the battlefield gets killed, the colonel can take over. Maybe the major can. Captain probably can't. In the Marine Corps, you could kill everybody down to the PFC and he'll go take the hill because he knows what to do. And he doesn't need to have a whole lot of people telling him what to do. That independence of action first with independence of thought. I have to tell you, based on the thousands of companies that I've been in, 99% of the people that I talk to want to do. A better job. They yep. want to have better bosses. They want to have more impact on their customers. They don't want to go home and say, "We made, hey, honey, we made 2,000 cars and 3,000 of them are in the rework shop." They don't want to go home and say, "Old oh, Fred just lost his other arm because he, the light shield on his 150-ton Minster press failed and it yep. chopped it off." They they want a safe, productive environment. And if you tell them the difference between empowering them to do it, which means they're allowed to do it, and telling them that's their bloody responsibility to do it, that it's an imperative that they do it better every hour, every day, every minute, I think most people rise to that occasion. So that guy, I'm, in, I'm picking on a man who was 80 years old, and you know, God bless him, he had a bigger business than I do, but I think there would have been a better way to do it.
0: I think that's a fascinating response. I I have not come up with that on my own. And so, thank you. (laughs) This has been a a great deal of fun. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, sir. I love talking about this stuff, you know. So, there it is, how I learn. (laughs) Super. So, if someone wants to learn more about Lean or if someone wants to get a hold of you, what would you recommend?
1: Well, I have to say, uh, by regulation, by law, I'm allowed only to talk about investments with institutional investors. That's just an SEC kind of thing. But I love talking about lean. I would say either call me 410-522-0061. Email me at cliff at You can Google me. But if you Google me, Google Cliff Ransom Lean, because <laughs> otherwise you're going to get all of References to my son, who has the same name but a different number, and he looks like a brilliant Renaissance man, you know, editor-in-chief of Popular Science, senior vice president of Science Magazine, and, <laughs> and I mean Nature Magazine and Scientific American, uh, you know, uh, the excavations in the Yucatan for Mayan temples. I'm just a dull lean guy, so put Cliff Ransom lean in, and that'll tell you kind of everything you need to know about me. But if you want right. to contact me, do that.
0: Excellent. I hope they do because you're a fascinating fellow. Not very many people have been in the corners of the world or had the fortitude to uh, withstand all the challenges and changes that have taken place. So thank you very much for being here. And I would look forward to our next chat. Thank you, sir. Very kind. Bye-bye. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.